I Read Comics, show number 38. my old boss used to greet everyone and do every phone conversation and she was insane so I kind of like to say that because it reminds me how glad I am that I don't work for her anymore I have so much stuff to talk about this time I, I was considering actually getting one of those sound effects that made it sound like um when you have a film strip and you have to go to the next slide or turn the page, you know, one of those bong kind of things. But me being me, far too lazy to find something like that to spice it up. So you're just going to have to do without. But I do have a whole lot of stuff, some new stuff, some old stuff, some things that I really, really, really like, and um, some other things that are good and some that I, I feel kind of lukewarm about. Um, so I, I was also thinking just to make it easier, maybe I should do like a scorecard at the beginning or the end of the show that kind of goes like, new Conan trade paperback, yes, Ministry of Space, no, but maybe that would make it too easy and then you'd stop listening after I actually did the yeses and noes. Anyway, let's just dive into this stuff and uh, we'll probably take a little musical break in between somewhere uh, to so that you don't get too bored. Um, a couple things I wanted to say up front. One is that I mentioned last time Leah Hernandez's house burned down, and if you haven't given her any money and you can afford to give her some money, please give her a little bit of money because every little bit helps. She's now in a rental house at least. They're not living in a, a tiny little hotel room anymore, but she can use all the help that she can get. So um, on my webpage, there's a link you can click through to donate through PayPal, which I think is the easiest way to do it. So please do that. Um, in good news, one of my most favorite podcasts is back on the air. It's called Skepticality, and it's a skeptical podcast, which I thought was great. And it was off the air for about three months because one of the hosts, uh, Derek, suffered a major brain trauma. I think he it was actually a stroke that he had, and it took him quite a long time. But he's back, and he sounds really good. And they are now the official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, to which I've subscribed for years and years. So I'm totally thrilled about that. And it's back, and it's better than ever. It's just great. So I love Skepticality. I'm so glad it's back on the air. And if you haven't listened to it, and, and you sort of enjoy a humorous, skeptical look at things, go listen to it. I think you would probably enjoy it. And I had one other little um, thing that, that I kind of caught myself doing, and I realized that I don't want to do it anymore, so I'm going to really try hard. I'm really against having uh, gendered words for the same thing, um, even to the extent that I don't, I try not to say, and I don't think I say actor and actress very much because they're all actors, right? Why should there be a different word for it? I, I really hate it when it's a fakey word like poet and poetess because that's just stupid. I think it's funny when people do it on purpose, like when you see editor and editrix. Um, but in real life, you know, let's try to use the most neutral words possible. And it got me thinking about heroin, not the drug, but the female form of hero. And I don't see why we need to have that separate word. I think they should all be heroes. I think even though it's not a conscious decision, when you use one of those gendered words, it, it brings some connotations that are probably not desirable. And especially when it comes to women, as we know, calling someone a heroine somehow makes it a little bit less than a hero. So I think they should all be heroes, and I'm going to try really hard just to say hero and not use heroin from now on. So there. 
So the first book that I wanted to talk about um, pretty much has no women in it, so we won't have a problem with that. And this is the uh, pretty new trade paperback of the Conan series, uh, the Kurt Busick and Carrie Nord one, and this is called Tower of the Elephant and Other Stories. I think this actually came out um, at the beginning of the summer. Of course, now I'm looking for the publication date. Oh, June 2006. The hardcover came out in May. This is the paperback. And... Um, this is a Dark Horse release, and I was waiting for this because I'm not buying the individual issues. I just wait for the trades to come out because I like them better. Oh, it's so good. How much do I love this? How much do I love this fucking series? It is just so good. Um, and the funny thing is, I, I don't know whether this is intentional or, or what, but basically this book should be subtitled, Conan Loses His Shirt. Because he loses his clothes in every single part of the story. Not that he's wearing that much to begin with, but in the scenes where he is wearing a shirt, pretty soon he doesn't have a shirt, and he ends up wearing his tiny little loincloth. And, you know, I really have no problem with that whatsoever, um, but I just think it's hilarious that he keeps losing his shirt, literally. Um, so that that I find highly amusing, and it's just so good. I mean, there are a lot of criticisms to be leveled at the whole sword and sorcery genre, and yeah, it's very sensational and uh, a lot of gore, especially in these books, much more so than the original Marvel comics. But, you know, in the stories, the Robert E. Howard stories are very gory. And a lot of that gore is intact. Um, not just people, but animals, too. Right on the first page, there's a deer that gets shot through the head with an arrow. And later on, Conan um, snares a rabbit and roasts it over a fire. And it, there's this really gross panel of the rabbit on a stick over the fire, just kind of skinned. And, you know, of course, it's not even realistic because if you were going to skin a rabbit, you wouldn't leave that much of the head on it, right? Because it's just wasteful. You're not going to eat it. You cut it off. But, you know, it's there for full gore impact, which I just find hilarious. Um, so it's got a, several different stories in here, and it ends with the Tower of the Elephant, so I want to come to that last. I just wanted to talk about the other ones first. The art is just so good in this. Everything about it is great. The characterization of all the little secondary characters who are in there, they're all distinct. They're all individuals. They all have something quirky about them. Um, they don't all look like extras. They look like people who actually populate this world. The colors are just beautiful. Um, in the very first story, Conan um, has just come from getting ripped off by the people that he was with. They stole his money and left him. And uh, he's kind of wandering by himself through the countryside, and he goes to sleep up on this mountaintop where it turns out that there are demons still, and he ends up fighting the demons. And um, the landscapes previous to the demon fight are all really in these uh, sort of beautiful yellowish washed colors. It, it looks like it could be early spring or maybe it's into fall and um, it, it's not barren but it's just kind of an empty landscape and then it's nighttime and it's pretty dark and then as soon as the demon shows up everything is in these amazing shades of red and orange and black and it looks really kind of cool and scary and then there's another scene where um, Conan leaves the demons and he goes to a, a crypt that's nearby and the color immediately changes like all the orange is gone and it's very it's like blue gray green of nighttime and, and just the contrast between the panels is really wonderful and action sequences are really good there's the usual sort of um, Conan level wit that's in here which is always funny and there's a really uh, for me amusing part which I'll read um, and uh, there there are women in it of course 
semi-naked women. But, you know, I want to be clear about this because I was thinking about this a lot as I was reading it. Um, Having semi-naked women in a Conan story is pretty consistent with the world that Conan supposedly lives in. You know, it's this kind of... uh, Vandal age, right? Like when the Germans overran the Roman Empire, and there are still parts of Conan's world that are pretty civilized. But you know, most of the people, it's it's they live with swords and they have some machinery, but not very much. And um, the women don't play a really important part into it, much as it was for us not that long ago. So when you see these women who are prostitutes or um, thieves or um, you know, performers or something, it, it kind of makes sense. And it's, it's not gratuitous to show them with very little clothing on. Cause you imagine that's if they were prostitutes, pretty much they wouldn't have been wearing a lot of clothing. So that makes sense to me. And when you see Conan, who Conan, he who loses his shirt all the time, it kind of makes sense too, because he's, as they keep calling him the barbarian. And he even says in one of these things where, uh, someone's trying to convince him to go stay in an inn and he says i'll sleep in the hills up there i'm a sumerian i could sleep naked in a field of snow and wake refreshed so he just doesn't even care about clothes and that makes sense for his character so i don't think there's anything really gratuitous about having him be half naked or almost all the way naked anyway um so so that's the nudity thing um i i thought a lot as i was reading this about how uh the dialogue in here, and I, I really can't remember how much of this is from the Howard stories, but how suited it was for Marvel, uh, the Marvel style. And when I'm reading it now as a Dark Horse comic, it still makes me think it's in the Marvel style because Conan says things that are just so Stan Lee-ish, so overblown and, and uh, you know, punctuated with violence. It, it's, it's funny and it's in character at the same time. So the second story opens with him uh, getting attacked by one, two, three, four five, six guys at least. They're all jumping him in an alley and uh, they're trying to kill him. And they say, overwhelm him, drag him down, kill him. He's just one man. And Conan says, one man? I, one man. And then the next panel shows him um, kind of beating the crap out of everybody just by flinging his arms open. But a Sumerian. And then uh, in the next couple panels, he... he, uh, just goes crazy and starts lopping off heads and everything and it's just it's so Conan and it's so um such a braggart you know it fits really well with that style so uh he has some adventures here he he's so by this point in the storyline he's he's in Zamora and he's a thief he's practicing to be a thief and that's how the Tower of the Elephant story sort of ends up and um it's nice to see him actually, you know, hooking up with a, a woman that he's with for a while. And as opposed to the Marvel stories, the sex is a lot more explicit. And, um, you know, that's sort of good to see. Uh, there's some creepy sorcery stuff that happens. There's a big, I guess it's supposed to be a big slug monster. And, you know, I'm remembering that there was a slug monster in one of the old Marvel uh, John Buscema stories. But it wasn't this one. It was a different slug monster. But it still ate people. So uh, a bunch of people get eaten. Um, and then uh, the Tower of the Elephant story, which takes up quite a lot. It's much, much longer. The story itself, the Robert E. Howard story, is pretty short. And the Marvel adaptation, the Barry Windsor Smith one, is only one issue. Um, and here it stretches across uh, several issues, at least three, I think. I'm just kind of paging through it. Um, 
So I, I dug out the, the Marvel one, the original one, just to do comparison. And um, I think they're both really good. They both have uh, stronger points than the other one does. I felt like this one was a little long, actually. There's a lot of buildup to what happens. Um, it kind of goes through pages and pages of setup here, which is okay. It's good for scene setting, but... Not a lot is happening except that Conan's finding out about the Tower of the Elephant, and you get a little more view of what the nightlife is like in the City of Thieves in Zamora. Um, and there's a lot of internal, uh, sorry, not internal dialogue, but exposition. So the expo exposition police show up and kind of fill everybody in on what's happening um, until he finally, finally gets to the Tower and decides that this is what he's going to do, steal the gem that's there that everybody talks about. No one's done it so far because there's sorcery and there's a uh, sorcerer who lives in there, Yara, who nobody dares to cross. So uh, he finally gets there, and, and that is the plot, finally, that's set in motion when he gets it. Um, and even the the smaller plot things that happen on the way, I think, are stretched out a little much. It, I wasn't bored by any means, but I was just kind of like waiting for things to happen. Um, the illustrations are very, very different, obviously, from Barry Smith, um, but totally suited to this particular interpretation of the story, which is a little uh, creepier and a little less action-oriented. In, in the Barry Smith version, things move along at a pretty fast clip, and the violence comes quickly. Things happen very, very quickly, and here there's sort of violence happens, and then there's a lull, and then there's more violence, and then there's another lull. Um, but I, I think it still works, and the creatures are all fairly uh, creepy. <laughs> now, um, th there's one thing that I, I kind of missed in here, and I couldn't dig out my paperback to see if this line is actually in the story, but at one point Conan fights a big spider, and he kills it by um, throwing a, a chest full of jewels at it. And um, the story of him kind of dancing around the spider and trying not to get bitten, again, is much, much longer than in the Marvel story, and he finally kills it. And in the Marvel version, he says something to the spider along the lines of, I wonder who you were before Yara cast his spell on you. And that's not in here. And I kind of missed that because I felt like it was a nice commentary from Conan um, imagining or, or maybe knowing that the spider monster wasn't a natural thing. It was something that the sorcerer her cre who created it to be protection and feeling a little sorry for it at the same time he had to kill it because otherwise it would have killed him but recognizing that it wasn't just this unknowable evil thing that maybe it had once been a human being and uh, I, I was kind of looking for that you know I was paging through and going oh I remember and then it came to that and he didn't say it and I felt a little disappointed um, then we get to uh, the elephant part <laughs> the, the um, creature that he discovers the alien that he discovers there and it's clearly a different art style and a different interpretation of what that um, alien might have looked like. And I think it's fine. I think it's an interesting way of looking at it. And uh, there is this beautiful interlude um, that's drawn by a different artist. So let me just flip over here. Um, Michael William Kaluta has a guest shot here for about six pages where um, the alien Yagkosha is talking about how he came to Earth. And it's really beautifully illustrated in a very, very different style. It looks almost, uh, I was going to say Windsor McKay, but it's not quite that. But it's um, almost a little Maxfield Parrish-ish. It's, it's uh, a totally different art style, more fine-lined, 
um, less reliant on color in the way that Carrie Nord is, uh, and really, really incredibly detailed. Um, and it compresses a lot of history into just those six pages. So that, I thought that was brilliant that they dropped that in. It looks really good. Um, and it totally follows the history of uh, the aliens when they came to Earth, I think, in, in the way that the other story did. Um, now, uh, to, if you don't know what happened, you don't have to listen to me tell you what happens at the end, but it's not going to really spoil anything. Um, the alien wants Conan to kill him and uh, cut out his heart, ew, and squeeze the blood on this big gem. And then Conan has to take the gem to the sorcerer to, so that Yagkosha can get his revenge. And um, It's pretty gross, but I think it's well done. The illustration is really good. Uh, and it's not, like, icky. It's just shocking in the way that it should be shocking. And, uh, again, the scene at the end where, where the sorcerer Yara gets sucked into the gem takes up a good one. Hold on. Let me count. I'll tell you how long it takes. One, two, three, four almost five pages. And in the Barry Smith adaption, it was like one page. So I appreciate them trying to add a little more excitement and depth to this, but I felt like that at least went on just a little bit long. It wasn't so punchy. Um, and that's just my personal preference. And then one more thing, and this is really one of those things where I prefer the Barry Smith version much better. The very end of the story, the tower collapses. And the text actually says in both stories, uh, Conan looked back uncertain, uncertainly and saw the gleaming tower sway against the crimson dawn, its jewel-crusted rim sparkling in the glowing light, sway and crumble and crash into shining shards. And then that's the end. In the Barry Smith version, the way he's drawn it, very much from the same perspective, kind of looking up, the shards are actually, they look like stained glass. It looks like the whole thing has just kind of gone poof, into stained glass and the shards are beautiful, colorful, the sun is rising and kind of coming through them. And it really did look like shining shards. Um, and I, I was thinking it almost looked the way Barry Smith draws it as if um, the concrete or not the concrete, but whatever it was made out of, you know, marble, whatever, had disappeared, leaving only the gems, kind of the form of it in, in a gem form, you know, the outline of it, and then the gems all fall to the ground. The way Carrie Nord has drawn it here, it doesn't look like it's crashing into shining shards. It just kind of looks like it's exploding. And I, I was just a little bit disappointed at that. I, I felt like that final punctuation of what happens where the tower explodes should have been a little more spectacular. But that's just me, and that doesn't make it a bad story. I really liked it. And then at the end of this book, you get um, the essay called A Probable Outline of Conan's Career, which I've read a lot of times, and it's always fun to read it again, kind of see the chronology of things. So I just love this book. I think it's wonderful. I, I love all the things about it that I always loved about Conan, uh, him as a character and the settings and um, him being sneaky and better than civilized people and hating civilized people and cheating them at their own games and the sorcery elements of it that come into it. I just think it's wonderful. Um, so I haven't looked at any of the issues past this. Let's see, what does this collect up to? Does it even say? I obviously should have looked this up before I started recording this. Oh, well, it doesn't even say which issues this is. But I know that there are more out. I haven't looked at them, so I don't know. But I will get the next trade when it comes out. But boy... Just loving it. Just so very happy with this. Oh, this is where I should put the ding sound. Ding. Um, 
here's a real quick review because I don't have a lot to say about this. Um, Logan the Boy Wonder loaned me the Marvel Zombies book, which is um, another Robert Kirkman vehicle. Robert Kirkman, the uh, zombie guy, which is what I called him before I realized that he calls himself the zombie guy. And the artist on this is Sean Phillips, and uh, the colorist is June Chung. And, um, you know, I gotta say, it's not my thing. Zombie stories, zombie movies, they're fine. Night of the Living Dead, great movie. Day of the Dead, great movie. Dawn of the Dead, great movie. Um, I like them. But, (laughs) I mean, I was amused by seeing all of the Marvel characters as zombies and seeing how they interact with each other. I thought the fact that right in the first couple pages, Captain America gets half his head sliced off by his... (laughs) just. He gets half his head sliced off, and he's still kind of wandering around doing stuff. It doesn't make any difference to him whatsoever. This is hilarious to me. It's very, very, very funny. Um, But I think maybe I just have a a low tolerance for this kind of thing. You know, people getting eaten and maimed. and uh, Basically, the thing that I don't like about it is that zombie stories, sort of by definition, have sad endings. Because once people are being turned into zombies... You kind of can't stop it, right? And you can't really kill them all. And even when you think you've killed them all, there's still more around. So I kind of knew that it was going to have a a not happy ending. And I read it through anyway. And yeah, like that. So I'm sure that there are people who love this. And I think that that's great. This is just not a book for me. The art is great. And the dialogue is very funny. I I think that there are parts to it that are really good. But um, as a story, it just, it wasn't for me. Um... So thank you, Marvel, for making Marvel Zombies, and thank you, Robert Kirkman, for being the zombie guy. But I don't think I need to read any more zombie stories for a while. Okay, um, let me pick up one more thing that that I wasn't thrilled with, which I thought was good, um, but uh, it didn't grab me. So this is Ministry of Space, which is a Warren Ellis story, and I think this is probably the first thing by Warren Ellis that I've actually read. Um, So this is my first exposure to him. I know. Isn't it shocking? The artist on this is Chris Weston, and the colorist is Laura Martin. And uh, this came out in December 2004, and it's Image Comic, which, you know, you know who is the publisher of Image Comics, but I can put that aside. And um, I didn't really know anything about this, and I did a little research on Wikipedia, and I found out that this was a big deal when it came out, and it was an even bigger deal because it took them so long to put out each issue. So it's nice that it's collected in this trade paperback. Um, It's a beautiful trade. It has a a lovely cover. Um, The color reproduction is amazingly excellent. It looks great. The art is really great. Um, Everybody has said this, so I'll just say it again, but all of the art that focuses on the machinery, both... um, the past machinery, the World War II stuff, and then what we would call current, and then the stuff that's more futuristic, like the space stations and the installations on the moon and Mars, are just gorgeous. You know, the space stuff looks fantastic, and you can see why it took it so long to come out, because the time that they must have spent on the art um, is just great. Um, Even, um, I'm looking at this one panel right now, which is a full page of a nuclear explosion, and it's just amazing. So I love the art. I think the art is beautiful. I think the coloring is beautiful. The level of detail is just incredible. The story kind of left me cold. Um, It's a story, probably everybody who's listening to this knows what the story is, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, It's an alternate universe story about what would have happened if the English had gotten hold of um, the secrets of 
rocket travel and even secrets that, you know, we don't know about at the end of World War II instead of the Americans. So in real life, as we know, the Americans stole all the Nazi German scientists like Werner von Braun, brought them to the U.S., and that's how our space program got started. So in this history, um, the British get all those guys and all the secrets and fund their own program in various devious ways and basically go to space and take over everything. And they claim the moon and they claim Mars and they have they've made... Um, this amazing space travel, more or less an everyday thing. So it's th- that story, and it's specifically the story of the guy who was uh, responsible for all this happening, <clears throat> whose name is Dashwood. And uh, he, I, I think the characterization of him and the other people in the story is really good, but he, we don't, we either don't see enough of him or he doesn't reveal enough of himself to make me care about him. Uh, He kind of seems like a bastard to me and he doesn't reveal enough of himself and his ambitions and why he wants to do this to make me care about him more than thinking, Jesus, he's a bastard. He doesn't have any romantic interest. He doesn't seem to have any friends. Uh, He just does these things because he wants to see Britain be first, always first England has to be in charge of everything, basically. And that's his whole motivation for doing this, is for England to be first. And I understand that kind of patriotism, and I think it's right for him as a character, but I I just feel nothing for him. As a a character, as a man, I feel absolutely nothing. Um, There's a scene in here that, that shows what happened when he was testing a rocket, that he lost his legs. And this is a huge traumatic thing. And yet, as I was reading it, I felt nothing. I didn't feel bad for him. I didn't feel like, oh my God, that's so that's bad, that's terrible. It was just like, oh, he lost his legs. Well. <laughs> and, and I don't like it when I can't feel for the characters I'm reading for. I, I want to care about them, and I just didn't feel like I could care about him. Um, in contrast to him, now I'm going to give away the spoiler at the end of the story. Um, there's a character who appears in um, the beginning of the story and she appears in the middle of the story for a little bit and then she appears at the end of the story. And she is uh, one of the people that's employed by the Ministry of Space. And uh, her name is Lucy. And she has the job of kind of uh, ferrying Dashwood around when he's an old man. And she seems to have some rank, but everybody calls her Lucy anyway. Um, there are some women in here, not too many. Uh, the thing, so when I, I open this up and I look at her and I see her piloting this craft, I go, oh, cool, she's a woman and she happens to be black. That's pretty cool. I like that. And she looks very snappy in her uniform. Looks good on her. You know, the English are very good at designing uniforms, we must say that. And we see her again at the end when Dashwood is explaining where he got the money to fund uh, the Ministry of Space from, and it was essentially dirty money, and I, I won't go into that whole detail. But um, he, he's being called on this, and he says, uh, it was because of the, the what I did and where I got this money from that England is number one. He says, if I am a monster, then England is too. See if England cares with her free electricity and cheap food, cheap food and her glorious, unchanging aspect. So he's just saying, look, the ends justified the means. Whatever I did, it doesn't matter. We got where we are today because I did this terrible thing. That's his opinion, and it's not clear who else agrees with him. Everybody else seems pretty appalled by where he got this money from. So we go through this, and, and he's you know talking about how great England is now, and at the very, very, very end, in the last two panels, 
um, Lucy is ready to take him home, and a voice says to her, he's ready for you, Lucy. And so she's putting her hat on, getting ready to go, and it looks, you see that the room she's coming out of on the space station where they are says, non-white women's staff. So the balloon is burst at that point, and you realize that um, even though all of these other things have been achieved, there's still ingrained racism. And that didn't happen well. Not that there isn't racism now, but it's not uh, sanctioned by the government the way it seems to be in this universe where the Ministry of Space exists. So England got all this stuff at the expense of um, governmental rights for non-white people. So, you know, good point. But in all of the eight panels that Lucy appeared in, I felt much closer to her than I did to Dashwood. And I would have loved to see more about her she seemed to me a much more interesting character in a much more interesting way than Dashwood or any of the other old white guys who are in here. So that's me personally. Um, as I said, the art is just gorgeous. It's a really interesting story. As my friend Greg from New Zealand pointed out, he said, you know, this could have been done in about six pages. And I, I think I agree with that a little bit. Parts of this just go on a little bit longer. Um, so I'm not saying I didn't like it, but I just feel like... Um, it, it didn't it didn't grab me, it didn't touch me, it didn't make me want to know more about this character. And in fact, if this was an ongoing story, like if there hadn't been just four issues, or I think it's four issues of this, I don't think I'd be interested in reading more about it, because there was nobody in here, aside from Lucy, that I really wanted to see more of. So, that's Ministry of Space. Um, let me do another quick one, just before we take a break here, which I love. Uh, Carl Christian finally has come out with... Um, last in this current series of the Byron comics. So this is Byron number four. And I've been talking about this the whole time, about what a crazy book this is, and Byron getting mixed up with all these uh, monsters and vampires and things like that. And um, this book resolves, I'll put quotes around that, some of what happened previously. And of course, like any good monster story, it's not really resolved at the end, but this is so action-packed. There's so much stuff that happens in it. And Byron actually turns into a bit of a hero, which I think is great. Um, he even looks a little bit different at the end. I've noticed that he sort of changes. The way he's drawn changes as the book goes along. Um, and I think that's part of him growing up a little bit. Um, and at the end, after there's been this huge climax and a big fight with all the vampires and a killing and fire and all that... Um, he sort of grows up a little bit. Um, he has yeah, his friend says, you're the fearless vampire slayer. And he says, you know what? I'm tired of all that. Time to put several childish things away. You can have my copy of Dracula. And uh, he leaves. But, of course, things aren't over at that point. And Carl says that there's definitely going to be more Byron comics. Uh, yes, look for Lord Byron's continuing adventures in the autumn of 2006. So I love the series of Byron 1 through 4. I would say definitely pick it up. I can't wait to see what else happens with him. And as always, you know, Carl has this wonderful art style that uses a lot of black. It's very, very pointy. Everything's pointy in it. And uh, the dialogue is, of course, um, hilarious <laughs> because he's such a witty guy. Uh, so yeah, Byron, go get some Byron. I'll put up the link. You can get it directly from Carl. Um, and I know he's gotten some distribution in comic stores, but your best bet is just to order it directly from him. And, um, there's also some other things that, um, Carl has put together. He did a nice little, uh, 
indie-sized compilation of uh, Schadenfreude, which I had talked about in an earlier um, episode of the show. So if you were, if you wanted to get Schadenfreude, buy Byron one through four and ask Carl very nicely for Schadenfreude, and who knows, he might even toss it in for you. So I think I need to get a drink of soda. <laughs> I'm going to play some music, and then I'm going to come back, and then we're going to talk about um, finally some of the swag I got at Comic Con. talk about is uh, a series called Scar Tissue. And I knew about Scar Tissue for a long time because um, the guy who draws Scar Tissue, David Wachter, um, I had known from uh, one of the comic book forums because, as I always say, he is the voice of reason. He's such a reasonable guy and will argue with the alpha monkeys being reasonable with them long past the time when I would have started slapping people and ripping their hair out. So that's a good thing. Um, The story is by J. Andrew Clark, and this is... uh, published by Ronin Studios. Ronin has a lot of other uh, fun titles as well. So this story is just really, really fun. I love what they're trying to do with it. I'll read you the summary because the summary in the front of this is very much like uh, at the beginning of a Saturday morning serial, you know. The story so far. Ben Foray, a teenager dying from a congenital heart defect, is given a second chance at life after a successful heart transplant. While in recovery, he begins to develop supernatural powers he cannot explain. Ben confronts his brothers, demanding the truth about his new heart, only to learn that the donor was a supervillain named Grundoom, who was killed in a fierce battle with a hero known as the Compatriot. As Ben struggles with this new knowledge, he is overcome by the powerful voice of Grundoom in his mind, attempting to control him. To make matters worse, Ben is pursued and captured by the sorceress Savasuthra, who intends to kill him and steal the source of his power. His brother Donnie attempts to mount a rescue with the help of his U.S. Marshal ex-girlfriend Joe, but it appears they may be too late. So that's the intro from uh, issue number four, which is what I have, one through four. And um, it is a really fun thing. that They've taken all these uh, sorts of cliches, you know. There's so many bad stories about people getting a murderer's heart or hands or something like that. And in this case, he really does get a supervillain's heart. And I love the name Grundoom. I think that is so funny. Um, it's a, it moves along at a good clip. Um, the, I think the art and the story improved from issue one. It got a lot less talky and more you know, a lot less uh, tell and a lot more show, which I thought was great. The characters are really fun. Um, they they wisecrack with each other, but, you know, not so much that you want to hit them. <laughs> They're not that much of a wise-ass. Um, and, you know, there's monsters. There's lots and lots of monsters in here. Um, and there's chases through sub uh, subterranean pathways and other superheroes. This is clearly a world where superheroes and supervillains just kind of exist as part of the daily fabric of life. Um, so I thought that this was really good and a really nice twist on a, a kind of classic monster story. And um, I like the way the characters change over the course of four issues. You know, Ben changes a lot, not just because he's got the heart of a supervillain named Grundoom, but um, he learns a lot. And by the end of it, I, I started feeling really differently about Grundoom as a character, even though he's a supervillain. At the very end, 
I kind of felt like he wasn't that villainish for a lot of reasons. Um, he has a, um, a certain pride in being who he is and he ends up caring, if I can use that word in the character of a supervillain, about these little gnome guys who get made by sorcery out of his blood and organs and things like that. And uh, I, I just thought that that was kind of an interesting uh, way of looking at it. I'm trying to find... Uh, yeah, he, he, Ben is now possessed by the spirit of Grundoom. He sort of accepted it and he says... Uh, I am ready to join the battle. I will eagerly repay betrayal with retribution. And as for you, my misbegotten sons, we shall see if your blood truly burns with the metal of my wrathful heart. So he's like taking responsibility and ownership of these little gnomey guys who get made from parts of him. So that was kind of cool. Um, and I'm really kind of curious to see where this goes next. It's uh, got some some not gory stuff in it, but um, you know people getting blown up as as any good comic book should. There should be punching and there should be things getting blown up. So I was happy to see that in here too, and I, especially in this fourth issue, I really like the coloring. Um, it's supposed to be in this underground cavern, and it's fair. it looks like an underground cavern. There's a lot of black and a lot of uh, sort of uh, green washes over everything, which is cool, and uh, the. There's a lot of kind of uh, stalagmites and water pouring out in this underground cavern. It, it's just, it's good. So um, I was pleased. Now let me say the one thing that bugged me a little bit about this, and I have communicated with Dave about this, so I'll tell you what I said and I'll tell you what he said. Um, this sorceress lady, whose name is Savasuthra, on first glance, and as I look at her, she continues to look like pretty much a Las Vegas showgirl gone goth. Um, she's wearing, well, she's not wearing very much, is she? Uh, she's kind of wearing these high-heeled boots, for one thing, and she's wearing a little tiny vest and a little tiny thong, and, uh, she, her head is shaved, except for kind of these, uh, strands of hair that are coming off the back of her head, so it, it's not quite a mohawk, but, uh... It definitely makes her look a bit punkish. There, it's like three separate little ponytails right across the back of her bald head with these ropes of hair that are coming out of it. And and these boots are sort of thigh-high, uh, kind of... I was going to say Vampirella, but they're not really Vampirella boots. Um, and gloves. And, of course, you know, gloves that come up to her, her elbows. So my comment to Dave was, she looks like a Las Vegas showgirl gone goth. And he said, well, what I was trying to do with her was obviously to play on the parody of the female sorceress who dresses like that, but also to think about what she would dress like being, you know, transgressing and stuff. And, and that was why he uh, decided not to have her wearing very much, thinking that she would um, want to violate taboos about showing lots of flesh. And I understand that. I think that it would have been more interesting to do a different take on her and to try to find different ways of conveying the fact that she is a character who uses her sexuality to get what she wants. Um, having her with a bald head with the things coming out of it, that was pretty cool. I liked that. I thought that was good. Um, the high heels with the thigh-high boots and the little thong, not so much. It's not that it's transgressive. It's boring. We've seen it so many times before. It's not a twist. It's not a twist on anything. It just look, makes her look exactly like 
oh, I don't know, go pick up a couple of DC titles or a couple of Marvel titles and you'll see female characters dressed like her all over the place. To me, how much more interesting would it have been if she wasn't dressed like that, if, they, if there was a different way that they could have dressed her to still convey the fact that she um, wants to be this seductress. For me, that would have made it more interesting. Um, and that's just me. I, I thought it was interesting that there's a, a fairly explicit a couple of panels where they show her with Grundoom, so it's clear that they're banging each other. That, I mean, you don't often see that in comic books, so that was kind of cool. Um, but I wish she had been dressed differently. And, you know, as always, I'm always opposed to the high-heeled boots and the high-heeled anything. And, you know, just practically speaking, if she has her lair in this uh, subterranean cavern where it's really cold and slimy, and uh, she's dealing with you know, these gnome, gnome guys that are made from medical experiments on the body of Grundoom, don't you think she'd be wearing a little bit more? You know, it's cold and wet down there. Don't you want to wear something else? Anyway, um, but I like scar tissue. I think it's really good, and I'm looking forward to the next issue. So if, if you like these kinds of stories, humorous stories um, that put a nice twist on the whole monster genre, I would definitely recommend it. So let me move along to something else, which happens to be by Warren Ellis. So this is the second thing I read by Warren Ellis. And this is the trade paperback for Planetary, and it's the one that's called All Over the World and Other Stories. So Warren Ellis wrote it, and John Cassidy was the artist. And um, I knew nothing about this. Like, I hardly know anything about the authority, really. So... I don't know who these characters are. I don't know where they came from. I picked it up pretty quickly. Of course, I went on Wikipedia and I did some research. And I think the concept of planetary is fascinating. This sort of super meta uh, mystical archaeology stuff that they're doing is really cool. It's a neat concept. And I liked the stories that were in here. But I felt like things moved so slowly really slowly, like a story that could have been told in four pages got told in 14 pages. And art is really nice. Um, there's some really beautiful things in here, some lovely landscapes and um, some cool monsters, you know. I, I, I understand that each issue and the ones that were collected here um, are takeoffs on sort of classic movies, and the second one is... Uh, where they go to, uh, you know, Monster Island, and they find all the, the monsters that were there, you know, the Mothra and um, things like that. And that was cool. So I, I, like, I get all of the references and the wit that goes along with it, but, again, I didn't find the characters very compelling. Um, they didn't mean much to me. The The main character is uh, Elijah Snow, and he's interesting. We don't really spend enough time with him to find out uh, where he's from, and I assume you get all that from the authority. Um, but, you know, what the hell do I know? I don't read them, so I have to rely on this book. And uh, the other guy, oh, what the hell is his name? See, that shows you how much I'm remembering from this. So there's him, and there's Jakita Wagner, and then there's the drummer. And I, like, don't get him very much. I don't know where he's from. I'm kind of unsure about what his super skill is, except that he talks to machines. Uh, it's you know, I, I want to like these three people. I think they're very interesting as a team. And as the book goes through, we find out that there are other members of Planetary in other places, but they rarely meet each other. And that was an interesting concept, too. So I'm guessing that in later books, we actually get to meet more of the Planetary team, which is cool. And um, the story in which uh, they find this artifact and end up um, talking to uh, a, an alien that's crashed on Earth, 
and is trapped here was just really, really interesting. And some of the art in here is just unbelievably beautiful. And I thought that that was great. You know, there should be more stuff like that. And this is very Windsor McKay, um, sort of Windsor McKay crossed with Barry Windsor Smith. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this alternate reality where the alien is letting them see, uh, the inside of the ship essentially. And, ah, that was just beautiful. Um, and then, you know, this whole kind of subplot that goes along with Doc Brass, who is this old time hero that they find and he's kept himself alive for all those years while he was waiting to be rescued. Um, and the ties back to sort of old style action adventure stuff, you know, it's, it's all really interesting, but again, I just couldn't care that much about the characters. I was left a little bit cold by the whole thing. Um, and I know that there's more planetary, but I'm just not that interested in reading it. So I'm sure that there are people who maybe who are in the flow of this story who get more out of it. And that's probably great, but I don't think I'm going to add this to my, my list of things to read. So there you go. That's planetary. Um, let's see. I will talk also about, um, two issues of a self-published comic that's called The Homeless Channel, and it's by a guy named Matt Salady, and I met him at, uh, Comic-Con also, and he very kindly gave me some issues of this so that I could review them. And it's a really interesting concept. Um, it's about a woman who decides that, uh, she is going to start a cable channel, which is essentially called the homeless channel. And it follows the lives of homeless people. And, um, she defends this concept, these, this exploitative concept by saying that it will actually benefit homeless people. It will let people see what it's like for homeless people. And she will use, um, her influence to help out homeless people and maybe to try and make things better for them. So it, it's a really interesting concept. And, um, the first two issues are about how she gets this started and then um, how she's sort of running things and people are sort of afraid of her um, because she's, well, as anybody who would start a TV station and then run it, she's um, very efficient and um, has no tolerance for bullshit and kind of does things that the way she wants to do things. The art style in this is really interesting. It looks like photographs that have been Xeroxed into black and white. Um, there's a really high level of detail in some of them. And some of these may actually be photographs that were then Xeroxed. Um, or maybe the art is just really incredibly good. Um, it's black and white, and it's in an interesting format. It's not quite square. It's probably um, something like 7 by 5, I think. It's not uh, any bigger than that. And there's a lot of story that's packed into this. And uh, some nice relationships that are building up in it. Um, I, I thought that this was interesting and I like the main character. The thing that I found really hard is that I had a hard time telling the characters apart. And I don't know if that's the art style or whether it's me just not being able to tell them apart, but from, um, scene to scene, I was having trouble recognizing people and going, is this the same guy or is this a different person? Um, so the main character's name is Darcy. And every time I saw Darcy, she looked different to me. And I was like, is that Darcy or is that somebody else? Why does she look so different to me? And, and I said, maybe it's just me. Um, and then there's a guy that she, um, sort of hooks up with. And also from panel to panel, I, I had a hard time. I was like, is this really the same guy? So I think maybe that's just 
something that you need, it, it, it takes some getting used to within the context of the story. Um, and there's some funny uh, little jokes in here as well that you really have to look closely in the art for that I thought were good. So um, I, I like Homeless Channel. I think it's really good. I think you would probably have to get it from um, the author because it seems like um, it, you might not find it in your comic book store. So I'll put up the link to it and uh, you can get it from the guy, com, I believe. So um, that it's a really interesting concept for a book. So I think I will close with yet another Comic-Con reference. Um, the Teen Titans movie was finally on C Cartoon Network, and it was just as good as I remember seeing. Of course, it has commercials now, so you have to sit through the commercials. But man, it's a fun movie. I really, really, really liked it, and I was glad that they were showing it already. And I taped it, so now I have it forever. And I think I might have seen it out on BitTorrent somewhere as well. So... Um, I can definitely recommend the Teen Titans movie. Cartoon Network tends to show things over and over and over and over and over and over again, so you should be able to catch it at some point. But yeah, Trouble in Tokyo, it's really good. Oh, and I want to mention one more thing that I found out today totally by freaking accident. Um, I saw this in, I think it might have been one of the links off of uh, When Fangirls Attack, which you should still be reading. If you're not reading it, keep go. Sign up for it. Read it. Um, apparently, there's been... Uh, a Love and Rockets series running in the New York Times Magazine section for the whole summer, and I didn't know about it. Nobody told me, and I didn't see it publicized, and it certainly wasn't, like, I I don't search out Hernandez Brothers stuff, but I figured I should have heard about this somewhere. So it was a series by um, Jaime Hernandez called uh, La Maggie La Loca, and it's a Maggie story, and it's a Maggie story about um, her visiting her friend, um, Raina, and Raina's a character who had been in Love and Rockets a long time ago and sort of came in and out at different points, and this is like an update on what happened to her and this little adventure Maggie has going to visit her. Um, and it's in color. Oh, it's in beautiful, beautiful color. It looks great. And it was in the New York Times Magazine section every Sunday until uh, like two weeks ago. I think that was the last one. Fantagraphics is definitely going to republish all that art collected up in, uh, I think, a special issue of Love and Rockets, so you will get to see it. However, you can see it for free right now by going to the New York Times Magazine section. Now, when I went there tonight, frantically looking for it because I had to read the story immediately, the links didn't work. So if you go to the Times, uh, nytimes.com, and you look for La Maggie La Loca, it gives you links to the pages, but when I went to the pages, I couldn't get the image files, and that pissed me off. But fortunately, through some sleuthing, I found somebody who had posted the web address of one of the image files, and I just started experimenting with the web address and putting in different dates corresponding to all the different Sundays when it appeared, and lo and behold, I managed to get all of it. The files are about one or one and a half megs apiece, so they're a little bit big. They're PDFs, um, except for the very last one, which for some reason was 11 megs. So you might want to actually download that because I couldn't even get it to work in my browser. I think I will put up the links to all of those just to save everybody a little time having to screw around with the Times website to find them. It's a really good story. It's very Maggie. Um, the thing that kind of surprised me is that Maggie actually says in the story that she turned 40. And I'm wondering how far this story is ahead of the current continuity um, where the story is, and maybe it's not even that far ahead of what's happening in the Love and Rockets books right now. I'm not sure, um, but it's it's a good story, and I was 
I was browsing around a little bit just looking for some information on it and uh, I found some comments at some site where people were saying oh these are supposed to be the funny pages and I don't think that La Maggie La Loca is funny at all like well it's not supposed to be funny it's a story it's a story about an interesting character I mean there are funny parts to it because Maggie has a very funny take on life and her life especially but it's not supposed to be funny like make you laugh out loud funny anyway if you're a fan of love and rockets and you, you like to read about Maggie I hope he's not in the story except she's mentioned once but it's it's a Maggie story all the way um, you will like this it is really very good and I was so happy to find it and be able to get all the PDFs for free so that was a good thing uh, okay wow that was a hell of a lot of stuff um, I hope I didn't go too fast and skip anything important let me close by saying um, we're gonna have um, a little musical tag at the end, which is not um, the the fabulous Mayerson Street of Crocodiles. We'll do that again next week, uh, but something different. Um, don't forget to give money to Leah Hernandez. Don't forget to shop at Comic Relief, the only comic book store that matters, down on Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. They're just so wonderful. I love them so very, very much. And the fact that I bought that Conan trade there makes me just tingle on inside. Um, so next time we will be back with even more stuff because I have a lot of other stuff that I've read that I haven't gotten around to uh, reporting on yet. And uh, in the meantime, please enjoy this karaoke version of the Teen Titans theme. Wait, uh, the lyrics are in Japanese. I will obey the traffic rules. Teen Titans! I will eat everything without rice or dislike. Teen Titans, earthquakes, lightning, fire, gas. Grammar, math, science, social studies. There is nothing I am afraid of. Teen Titans, go! Uh, Mama, wait, control. This is all.